You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. To the Learning Futures Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Sean Leahy, and today we've got another great show discussing artificial intelligence with some wonderful colleagues. So let me jump right in and introduce our special guest host who's joining me today, Roshna Mather. And Roshna and I have been working together this semester in our AI and Education Learning Futures Collaborative, along with Punya Mishra and Scotty Craig and some others as well. So I'm really excited to have Roshna here join me today also to share the load of of hosting uh, a very special and uh, in, an interesting guest that we have today. And so to introduce Roshna, I've stolen this uh, mostly from your website. So if it's wrong, it's I'm not taking responsibility. Um, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so Roshna is an artist, an engineer, a teacher, a tinkerer, a researcher, a dreamer, and a lifelong learner. Um, she's an educator and computer engineer with over 20 years of combined experience teaching children and adults in informal spaces about coding, AI, robotics, and other STEM subjects um, like dance and art. After a career in software engineering at Intel, she's now the CEO and founder of STEMology Club and currently pursuing a doctorate in education with a focus on teaching K-6 STEM through stories. So, Roshna, welcome. You're just that bio, you, clearly you're like the perfect guest host, uh, co-host to have with me today. So I'm absolutely <laughs> thrilled um, to have you here. Thanks, Sean. And then, so today, as I said, we're talking about artificial intelligence um, in education. So, so far in season five, this is our second episode devoted um, to that topic. And as we mentioned last time, we've been very fortunate to have some of our wonderful colleagues answer that call to come talk with us and share their thoughts and expertise around this rapidly evolving field of AI and machine learning and what implications it may have for education. Um, and today's guest is no exception. And since Roshna, since you are the one who actually knows our guest, I thought it would be best if perhaps if you could do the honors of introducing them. So we're doing this, we're implementing a new technique here. It's like the daisy chain of introductions. I introduce one, then, then and we'll just kind of go that way. So <laughs> uh, yeah, for, first of all, Roshna, welcome. And then yeah, who, who introduce our guest? Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean, for this lovely introduction and for having me on the show and for my first time on the show. So I'm really, really excited to introduce my good friend, serial entrepreneur, investor and advisor, amongst many other things from Austin, Texas, Ganesh. And um, before we get into Ganesh, and uh, Ganesh, before I ask you about your own introduction, um, amongst you know many of his ventures and accomplishments, he is the founder and creator of a successful podcast called Stories in AI, um, where he's interviewed many of today's uh, international experts in AI, including um, one of the you know two of the ones that I remember, including the founder of Siri, Adam and um, Jay Ribeiro, uh, which I'll probably uh, talk about a little bit later when I have some questions for you. And um, I was really honored to be one of the guests on his show last year to talk about STEM and early education. And now I'm really excited that you're here today on our podcast to talk about your perspectives on AI in life and education and, um, and in your businesses. So before we jump into your, uh, into, into your introduction, I did want to like point out that Ganesh and I, we met many years ago in Austin um, through a dance company, a me dance company, my brother-in-law's dance company. 
And one of the fun things I noticed um, in this last couple months was that you were part of a dance fundraiser. And um, I saw you and your wife, Anita, doing a pretty awesome Bollywood dance. So among the many, many skills <laughs> that you have is also dance then. So Ganesh, thank you again for joining us today. Maybe you can tell us a little about a bit about the dance, but do tell me about yourself and the work that you've been doing. Rajna, Sean, thank you so much for inviting me. It is such a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, and yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm so much of a dancer. I, I like to dance in general, right? It's like, it's a form of expression. And, you know, in a world that is increasingly getting, um, I would say, um, you know, very, very um, structured and unstructured at the same time. But, you know, you're actually living in with intelligence that is not just in human forms, like artificial intelligence and, you know, robots and things like that, right? It just comes down to the core ways that are unique to human beings. Now, that said, I saw a Boston Dynamics robot last night that is doing a pretty good dance. I don't think it was doing <laughs> Bollywood dances, but it did a good That's dance. Awesome. Dance as an expression of, you know, of what we are uniquely, you know, capable of as human beings. You know, there's so many things that goes into dance. So I love that from that. I am not a good dancer. My wife is, you know, Anita is a great dancer, but I, you she know, it, it was fun. It's fun being here. And, you know, thanks so much for uh, inviting me to the show and uh, no excited to tell you, you know, my perspectives and share my story. And thanks for the, the shout out to Stories in AI. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And tell us a little bit about, um, you know, you're the CEO and founder of Autonomize. So tell us about Autonomize and some of your ventures, past, present, that go, um, that actually connect to AI. Yeah, yeah, no. So uh, I have had the... Um, amazing pleasure and, and opportunity in my life to be um, with, you know, uh, involved with AI and data related projects almost for my entire professional career, right? And um, I'm a mechanical engineer, undergrad by education, spent 15 years in big tech, including a brief stint in Chandler, Arizona, where you guys are close to, you know, doing at Intel and then at Dell for a long time. Did several things, including uh, a lot of engineering, product management, general management, but helped set up some businesses that are the, that became the foundation for the cloud business, the big data analytics business, the AI business that is today, and ended up being a general manager for a pretty large uh, business at Dell. But then after like, you know, that, you know, first 14 to 15 years in big tech career, uh, you know, as most first generation immigrants, you had to wait for all the visa timelines and stuff like that, which I'm very opinionated about. I'll tell you all about it, but you know, um, it, it, so after that got done, I was like, okay, I can now go do something that can really be like fulfilling the American dream. I want to start a company and doing this. And the first thing that I actually found was a company, was a company, you know, we didn't even have a name at that time, but to, you know, it was, this was 2015, 16. And we started looking at, um, you know, AI is going to be this transformative force. And, you know, at the time, not a lot of people agreed with us at that time. Oh, it's not good enough and all that kind of stuff. But it was very evident, right? Three, th three big themes were coming together. The explosion of data and the availability of data for you know, training algorithms and learning from. The cost of compute went dramatically down with uh, you know, cloud computing. And then a little known thing like AI didn't really spring up in the last few years. AI has been, people have been working on AI. The term artificial intelligence was coined during the Dharma conference in 1965, I think, right? Something in the 1960s. So there's been a lot of compounding effect of things that have happened, which is just explored to that. So we saw this in 2015 and said, okay, why don't we start a company? If everybody's going to go build machine learning models and do AI, 
somebody has to explain it because it's one thing to look at a picture and say it's a cat or a dog, a totally different things to reject a medical claim and the patient dies and you're looking at a $40 million lawsuit, right? Totally different ballgame. So that was the idea behind it. One thing led to the other. I ended up joining a slightly larger company and you know, folding my company into that called Cognitive Scale, which was founded by IBM Watson's uh, original founders. Uh, and we built out a company early days of AI, working with several large global 2000 organizations. So I ran sales and marketing and growth for them. Left to found a company called Molecular because I started noticing AI is fun and hype and a lot of things in there. But the foundational getting the data organized to drive AI workloads was still a hot problem. We solved that with this company called Molecula. I was one of the co-founders, evolved into a company called FeatureBase. And then left in, uh, in, in 2020, the world was falling apart. You know, everybody's world, we all were, you know, having existential conversations, right? I mean, like we were like, okay, what is this world? You know, the, fra the fragility of human race and things like that. And really wanted to dive deep into take all of my expertise, experience, relationships and network and dive deep into, um, you know, healthcare because data is pr the most valuable asset humankind has ever produced. And using that to improve the human conditions will probably be the most noble passion for any technologist. And that's what I wanted to do. That's why we started Autonomize. And Autonomize started with a very simple premise that most of healthcare data is incredibly hard to work with. It's unstructured, you know, it's, it's in multiple silos and stuff. If you can actually turn that into structured, linked, contextual information, then you can uh, solve a lot of problems across the healthcare value chain. So we're uh, Autonomize AI is initially focused in uh, clinical development and clinical trials. We help accelerate really hard to recruit trials. You know, um, um, we help uh, pharmaceutical companies and biotechs launch drugs faster with AI, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for joining us. So, so clearly you're a, a novice in the space of starting companies and- <laughs> I know, right? I mean, uh, it, it's like the ultimate AI thing, right? So, so the AI or machine learning that forms the foundation of what we generally know as AI. Yeah is all about iterative learning, right? So in a weird sort of way, it's like the perfect, uh, you know, uh, alignment to, you know, starting companies because you don't, you know, it's just, companies are just vehicles that you're trying to actually go on a mission and you find the right group of people to go do something and you want to solve a big audacious problem. The company just becomes a vehicle to do it. And, you know, even before we, I started companies, like we were, doing a lot of these innovations inside a large company, like at Intel right, you know, right. and at Dell and so forth, right? So, but yeah, no, but but the timing is just this, we live in this amazing times, Sean. And, you know, if anybody's thinking of getting into AI, starting a company, there's no better time than this, right? I mean, this is, this is it's a call for innovators at this time. Yeah. Super impressive. And I, and I think one of the things that you, you mentioned there, I think resonates with and sort of reflects a little bit of what we're seeing too, right? Like, and I'll, I'm going to steal this term that I've been hearing on some podcasts I've been listening to with with Leo Laporte and stuff where he's he's mentioned, you know, when he's been talking about artificial intelligence and a lot of the things like you know ChatGPT and Dali and on and on, right? That we're living in. I think he he's, he said it great, which I'm you know going to kind of paraphrase. It. We're living in a Cambrian age of this like Cambrian explosion of artificial intelligence, because you're right, it's not new, right? That we, what no. we're seeing now is this 
this this rapid explosion of when things are finally getting to a stage to which they are reaching mainstream popularity, mainstream use, mainstream. I mean, we're seeing you know you a day cannot go by right now without seeing an article around an existential situation that's being created by the AI or or something you know the the unbound human potential that will be unlocked with these kind of things. And yeah, I mean, this has been going on for half a century or more. Um, and so it's one of those things. It's an it's an overnight success that took you know a half a century to get there. Years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> However, I think when we look back, what's amazing to see is even just you know when I think about um, a lot of the generative AI stuff, which is what's fueling that particular side of AI, which is really what's fueling so much of these um, popular discussions, right? As how much has happened from when. Like if we think back to summer, summer of 2022, lots, you know, Dolly, the, the second iteration of Dolly came out, lots of amazing things there. We had, you know, um, there was GPT, um, all these kind of text models, but then from the distance and how much things changed just from that point to October, November with chat GPT, with stable diffusion and the fact that now, I mean, things to the fact that with you know, even I'm running stable diffusion through uh, Diffusion B on my local machine, and even on you know uh, an iPad Pro running uh, localized stable diffusion on that, um, right? So how fast that is, and, and like, are we right now sitting? If we think about, we flash forward 50 years, let's say, is today? Are we standing at the very foot of this hockey stick curve that's just about to happen with generative AI? No, it's a with a very um, very loaded question, and you know you're exactly right. <laughs> I'm good at I those. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you you know it's it's definitely AI has been a revolution, you know, ongoing for the last hundred years, and definitely the one thing that we used to say we, we used to tell this to customers who were thinking about what is AI? Do I really have to pay attention? Back in 2015, we'll say, look, you know, the 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 um, one of the just like. Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger says compounding is like the ultimate, you know, uh, way to gain wealth. And similarly, compounding, the, the the concept of compounding is so relevant in like technology, right? Especially in technology that uses data, because there's a lot of compounding of knowledge that happens. So if you really look at the 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 history of AI, and I'm not gonna bore you with the details and stuff, right? But most of the work that, you know, until about 2018, 2019 even, was all about techniques and, you know, uh, uh, research, if you will, to say, how do you solve certain problems and how do you do it, right? What, even though a lot of the foundational things that we're doing and a lot of things changed since 20, actually 2017, there was a paper that came out called, is a very nondescript paper, a research paper that said, attention is all you need, right? Changes the world of deep learning and AI forever because it, it's just a brilliant paper. And again, not to go into the technology side of things, but that, you know, introduce this concept of this transformer and bi-directional transformer where you can actually have a wide model that can be trained on multiple tasks and a lot of data sets. And, you know, you can kind of get closer and closer to this general capability across multiple things. Because foundationally, so, I mean, all of that happened. And then this last year, summer 2022, with Dolly, Stable Diffusion, with GPT-3 coming out, the Codex, and you're now being able to... Um, capture the imagination of everyday person. I think that's the big thing that happened, right? So one of the, one of the things, if, if I look at this, this, this three phases, like there was a lot of research and then there is, you know, what is now happening is the democratization or the access to these cutting edge research 
through these tools, through these capabilities, right? Or more into applied AI. The generative AI revolution, and I think it's going to be huge. I think the big thing is we were always doing, you know, you were using AI to predict something and stuff. So all of that focused on workflows that we would otherwise use a device or a screen or a, uh, you know, or an Excel spreadsheet and stuff to do. But what changed with generative AI is it kind of was a snap for a human being that would otherwise ask another human being to do something is now as a complete task, as a more complex task is being executed by a machine learning model, right? And that more than anything, I mean, definitely there is a lot of hype in generative AI than what is possible today. And we can talk, go into all kinds of details of that. But what it, the big thing that happened, especially with chat GPT, I mean, the, the model is like the model is the model. It's whatever you can find on Google, you know, if you can Google around the world, but better uh, sorted, better generated, better interacted with you. The one thing, if you ask me that opening, I really nailed it, was conversation as the ultimate user interface, right? And I believe like, you know, I don't think people are seeing this. All, all of our, us technologists, when we build products, we're just spending all this time trying to think about how do you make the UI so cool? How do you make the interaction workflows or things? And then they just solved it with a simple switch that says, just have a conversation. That's how we learn. That's how we interact with the world today, right? Yep. With other human beings today. So how do you inter how do human beings interact with systems or intelligent systems? You know, it almost is coming down to the ultimate way you do it is is a is a conversational interface. So is it going to be a Cambrian explosion? Of course. So back in 2015, we used to say this to CEOs and board members saying, look, it's very, very early in AI. I still believe we are still very early in AI. Right. Sure. Yep. Absolutely. Because a lot of things will change over time, but AI is one of those compounding pieces of technology that you have the opportunity to be exponentially ahead of your competition or be geometry left behind. Right. So it's like it was a and, and it's no you know there's a lot of noise around like you know hey existential threat with generative AI and things like that and. You know, it's it's like some of these things are like just like the industrial revolution. Things are going to change, and some group of people are going to be displaced and stuff. But the it's, the choice is pretty binary. You either embrace technology and go into the future with a brave face on it, and say like, how do I maximize what's given to me to go do something, and whine about it and complain about it? I mean, it's just the the that's it's a that's a choice for most people to make. There's still a lot of education. What Ganesh is, I'm just going to cut in for a second. Ganesh, kind of what you kind of talked about, like there were two types of things happening. And it reminded me of something like, this is so interesting that I read from Mark Cuban. He said, there are two types of companies and that's how he feels about it today. There are two types of companies, those who are great at AI and everybody else. And there is, <laughs> um, you know, it, you know, at first I just sat with that for a moment and, and thought, I mean, I, I keep going, for me, I'm always thinking about in terms of our educational institutes and educational organizations, so not necessarily company, but that makes me wonder, you know, those who are great at AI, even within the educational environment, be it our children, those schooling systems, and then everybody else. And that's kind of, um, I think that speaks the same to any form of technology, any emerging tech. And it's both like exciting and terrifying because it's like, oh, you know, at least in the education world, that becomes very narrow. I mean, we're barely, we're still trying to deal with any form of technology, let alone jumping into now, what does AI and machine learning mean? But you brought up some like um, really interesting points, especially when you said, you know, the fact that as we were talking about this hockey stick curve, like where do you see that 
is that what's happening? But you said the everyday person, the fact that this is available now to the everyday person and this concept of democratization. So um, I might I might pick into that a little bit further, but I'm going to pass it over to Sean because I interrupted yeah. you there. <laughs> oh, no, there's no, oh, you can interrupt. P- please interrupt. Otherwise, <laughs> I'll just talk too much. And then that's we, that's not what we're here for. People are here to listen to you two, not, not necessarily me. Um, <laughs> but I think, so just even going back a short period of time, right? The last couple of months. Um, and with kind of coupled with the fact that these technologies are reaching sort of popular mainstream ability, at least for now, right? You know, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about AI and education. I mean, the New York Times recently just launched a, you know, a large article that was, you know, how are, how are, you know, universities and higher education thinking about, you know, because everyone's worried and you have lots of anecdotal um, people chiming in about, oh, I've caught my students cheating on essays. And, you know, what does this mean? And it's destabilizing everything. And, and you know, so you're kind of balancing those, right? And so as like a future scholar, one of the things that I'm always sort of looking to try to make sense of is balancing those, you know, the the localized immediate responses that people are feeling, um, whether they be emotional or potentially even, you know, actual or economic or whatever it might be in, in the in the immediate short term versus the longer sort of societal changes that come with these evolutions of technological change. And again, if we look at all these things and we hear all these, again, both sides, this is the most amazing transformative thing. We've got Dali, uh, or maybe it was mid journey or something. I can't remember exactly. Um, submissions, winning, winning fine art competitions, right? So, so fundamentally what, again, going back to the conversation, while we know it wasn't overnight, it was a, you know, half century or longer overnight success, but suddenly challenging the status quo of systems and procedures and things like that, that were in place. And of course, understandably, that can make a lot of people very uncomfortable very quickly. Um, And then you start to have these, you know, either uh, embracing or rejecting these kind of these technologies. But what it brought back to me was I'm thinking about like, how how do we start to talk about this in a way of thinking about how to respond to this change, right? What's, I don't think, regardless, it's not going to slow down, right? These changes are going to come faster and the scale, scope, and velocity of these changes will only increase. But I think back to um, a wonderful talk given by Neil Postman back in 1998, right? So using this framework from 25 years ago, he gave this great talk. It's titled, and we'll drop all the the links to the PDF of this, for example, in the show notes, five things we need to know about technological change. Um, And basically, again, sort of looking at on the precipice of, of, of Y2K, right? And all the fear and same, right? Same kind of thing. Oh, we hit the the millennium, all things are going to fall apart and the world will be plunged into darkness, um, all that kind of stuff. But thinking about it for even from that perspective, 25 years ago, one of his main sort of takeaways in this, in this talk was that from a broader perspective, there's no different challenge or these new challenges don't pose any new difficulties or problems than have been that, that we as humans have faced in centuries that have come before the 20th, 19th, 16th, in before that, you know, using a, a Henry David throw um, quote here, all of our inventions are but improved means to an unimproved end, right? That ultimately, and I love this quote that he puts in there, there is no escaping from ourselves. The human dilemma is as it has always been. And it is a delusion to believe that the technological changes of our era have rendered irrelevant the wisdom of the ages and the sages, 
So one of the things I would be really kind of, I thought would be kind of fun for us today as we're sort of talking around the contemporary challenges and opportunities and things that have come up with artificial intelligence in, and again, kind of reaching back to this idea of a Cambrian explosion where suddenly we're seeing this a massive amount or diffusion and spread of this technology that previously, you know, you had to work in the tech industry uh, to get access to. But now anybody, um, for example, with, with OpenAI's, you know, ChatGPT can get a hand, is thinking about kind of working through those, those five components and kind of thinking about how do we, how do we think about this? Is, is this new technological shift of what we're seeing today and what we project to see in the near future, does it play out over time as Postman describes that these are just the normal um, components? And, you know, Ganesh, as you were mentioning too, right? It's, do you put on that brave face and go with this or do you try to fight against it and get left behind? Or is potentially this such a new groundbreaking shift that it, it sets us to something perhaps we haven't seen before? I don't know. That's a good, good question, but I think you know. I don't. It, is it a groundbreaking? I'm on the fence whether it's actually really a groundbreaking shift, right? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think I have a theory. I have a theory on this, and I don't even know if it's true or not. But I, I think you know, all this while we had AI, and just just sticking with AI, machine learning, AI predictions, and uh, advanced analytics had replaced the analyst the digital marketer, the growth marketer, all of those folks who were doing crunching numbers to get into that thing. But we didn't see this kind of a hue and cry about it until it touched creativity and generative AI, right? So my theory here is, it's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is you hit a vein that human beings, more and more human beings identify with. They're all creative. We're creative natures, we're creative beings. So you touched on something that is core to the identity of a human being and saying, Here's an intelligent thing that's going to mimic you, that's going to be as good as you and even better. I mean, a lot better. I'll tell you my chat GPT stories very soon. But, you know, uh, but you touched on something very core to the human identity, which is I'm creative. I produce things. I generate things from nothing, right? Well said. And then when you see a non-living thing do that, right, you're getting a little shaken up. So that's one, right? I do believe it's transitory. I mean, I don't think people are going to just say it's the same thing. Like when, you know, the, uh, when Henry Ford's automobile came out, you know, the horsemen were very upset. Mm-hmm. I mean, then they were the ones who actually, who actually say, you know what, I'm going to just pick up. How do I, instead of holding two reins, how do I actually hold a steering wheel and move the car around? They made money. The others didn't, right? Um, it's kind of similar eventually, to digital every, artists, too. When it's digital artists, the digital artists, yeah, yeah. exactly, the like replacing classic Adobe, artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Gutenberg Press, right? I mean, so I think the, the throughout the history of humankind, but also history of technology, there has always been orders of magnitude changes. And it's always been about this one approach of how do you, you know, everybody starts with the right intent, improving the human condition, trying to get into some place that we're better off, right? Um, it's very arguable whether we are in a better off place as a human being, as a race, mentally, physically, physiologically, all that kind of stuff. But the goal is like, hey, if, I able, if I'm able to automate 80% of the things that I don't want to do, then I can focus that time on things that I really want to do. What do you realize? What do you really want to do at that time is scroll through TikTok videos. That's a different <laughs> problem, right? But, but you, you kind of like, but th- this whole thing across every step of the, ever since the Industrial Revolution, everything's... Fire was, you know, discovered by humankind. 
we've always had this thing about a part of the society or like everybody first is this shock factor. And so you can go back in history. It's very, it's very, you know, predictable, right? Hue and cry, hype, and everybody's worried, this FUD and fear, uncertainty, you know, uh, doubt, everything, and everybody's just going to, and there's going to be bad actors who are trying to take advantage of the situation. The whole thing happens. The whole world boils over. And then when the dust settles, you'll realize a few things, including with generative AI. We're still not anywhere close to a generalized intelligent thing, right? Not even close. Now, you know, some people, some people, you know, some really renowned scientists think it's going to be impossible to, you know, in the next hundred years, we might be getting closer to it, but not even close. I'm, I'm actually a little bit more optimistic. I think we'll be closer to that. Not, you know, I think we'll see it in our lifetime, right? Some form of it. But general intelligence itself is a very subjective thing. So, but, but I think one we'll realize that not really, I mean, this is good at a lot of things, but not all the things. So you start creating, you're carving out your identity, right? Nobody really, you know, uh, you know, when I was growing up in India, it was a big deal to know the multiplication tables of the number 16, top to bottom from one to 16. Mm-hmm. Nobody beats their chest and say, I know that today. <laughs> Right, you know, right. Or, or how many phone numbers do you remember? True, I, exactly. Remember the phone numbers. Oh, yeah. So that kind of you you will retool your identity around these things, right? And then you start realizing that end of the day, you got another amazing tool in your tool chest, be it stable diffusion or Chat GPT and stuff, and you now can produce something better or more or whatever your variable is that you're trying to optimize for. And then you suddenly feel that, okay, this is a great tool and I have to, you know, learn that and stuff like that. Now, there are still going to be people who's going to say, it's just like in the part of America who really hate immigration, right? It's an identity crisis. It's like, you know, this is what the places, I mean, with the, after forgetting the fact that they also were immigrants in the first place. But, you know, <laughs> it, it, but all of these things are very, very related. It's like, it's human psyche and human psychology in play right now, even with generative AI, right? We will learn, and after a while, we'll learn that these are the things that it's good at, and I'm going to use it as a tool to do the things that's going to maximize the output that I'm trying to optimize for. And then you realize, and there still will be some part of the society who is going to be challenged. They won't be able to keep up. Uh, you know, they'll be displaced. You know, there'll be unfortunate things that happen. I mean, and that's why we honestly have the government. That's the real role of the government to say, how do you really make, you know, the impact of technology? And we have to do it. I'm not a huge, like, I'm a... I'm fairly a you know low involvement like you know fair, fairly liberal in my thoughts, but we are going to live in a world where it's going to be impossible for enabling you know equitable experiences across the entire spectrum without you know um, whether it's a private party or a government public party, someone stepping in and ensuring that right. And it's, it's so regulations is going to play a big role. The the, the, the social programs are going to be, uh, play a big role. There is, you know, like I, I still believe the there's been a lot of experiments on UBI, which, you know, still not really seen good results out of it, like universal basic income. I think, you know, those things will have to start playing a big role. So there is a lot of societal, you know, um, how human beings live and interact in a society, which is going to be co-inhabited with intelligent things and systems and intelligent beings that's a new thing that we all will, in the Cambrian evolution, while we actually develop technology, we'll start re-engineering our social contracts mm-hmm. to make that happen, right? That's the way I see this play out. And I really like how you said, retool your identity. I kind of quoted you on that. That's uh, 
That is exactly <laughs> how I think it's happened in every so, you know, decade or two decades. There's that outcry and then we retool our identity. And so that was like a neat, neat way of looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you'll indulge me, let me throw out, I'm going to throw out five, five things to consider. So these are coming again, these are coming back from Neil Postman's 1998 or 25 years ago, because one, Ganesh, I think you'll hear a lot of what you just said uh, also in these, but um, the first one, and I have my favorite, it's number four, just to, I'll put a pin in that. Uh, First thing, first thing to consider, all technological change is a trade-off, right? The technology, I love this, technology giveth and technology taketh away. Um, And this consideration that with every new technology, uh, every new emerging technology that or disruption that comes along, there's always um, with the advantages that we reap from it, there's also potential, you know, disadvantages. Um, and so as we think about these technologies, asking not just what will this new technology create, but also what might it undo? Um, and this idea that culture, so kind of like we were saying, right, where it's sort of reinforming itself, that culture pays a price for technology. And sometimes that's one of the scariest parts, right? Is like with this new advantages, this new way of doing things, it's this merge into a creative space that for up until recently, right? Most people reserve that as something only uniquely capable by a human. Um, And then when you challenge that and not only challenge it, but win at something, right? Like an art competition or whatever it might be, or that it, that chat GPT writes a better essay than you do, or a better abstract for your journal submission than you can. You know that it, it that that it, it's a trade off that we do lose a little thing, but we gain a thing. And then the bigger question is, you know, how does that play out into the into the broader perspective? The second piece here is, of course, related directly to that, which we see with all technological innovations, is the fairness or evenness of distribution. Right? We always know that this, you know. It, I work, I do a lot of the work for myself in the fourth industrial revolution, right? That's one of the major concerns with these, which this is an exact example of, is how do we ensure a fair distribution? Because it's, you know, again, how do we, with with those advantages that come with having access to things like generative AI, and if you're able to use those tools to, per, you know, uh, have social mobility and things like that versus those who don't have access to, to do those kind of things is really an interesting perspective. So, I mean, on the, on the trade-off side, right? I mean, the advantages and disadvantages and stuff, right? And I just, I, I go back to fundamentals. The, the first principles way of looking at this is like, it's just, you know, it's less about technology, more about change, right? It's just like that you're, you know, like you said, your identity is getting challenged as you know it. That requires you to retool it and re-engage in a new identity that makes you feel better, more fulfilled, and you know, kind of squeeze in and coexist. Most people are not comfortable doing that. They will never be. I mean, that's human race, right? I mean, um, probably even other non non-human species are probably. Yeah. I mean, no, nobody right. likes change, right? right? In general, right? So right. I think I mean, the, the, the question. Models. You're right. We're always we're exactly. always trying to find equilibrium, right? And stay there. You know, you know, it's it's funny. It's uh, so on the one hand that's true, but if you really look at history or human ecology, right? Evolution is constant. It's constant change, right? Which means it's constant change. Which means it's like you know, it's the it's the rate of change that bothers people, right? And that's what happened here, right? The, the you know, if it happens over a period of that's a really right? good way to put it. It's the rate of change. 
Yeah, and it's always like, you know, think about it. Like if you think about, you know, we were, uh, I used to, uh, what is that? 50 years for the telephone to hit a million uh, users. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I can see that chart. And, I could have seen it a hundred times. Right? right? Yeah. Right. And then it was, I think the answer was like two weeks for Angry Birds to hit a million users. <laughs> but then Chad GPT did that in five days, four and a half days, right? Incredible. So the rate of change definitely is a challenging thing. And there's always going to be the, the advantages, disadvantages, but you know, it's very subjective, right? Even advantage to who, disadvantage to who, that kind of stuff. On your fairness and evenness of it, I think there's two parts of that, the way I see it, right? One is, well, the acceptance that there's things changing and having the want and the intent to keep up with it. So if there are people who's going to say, Chad GPD is going to completely take away my job as a blogger, well, I'm going to crib and complain about it. Well, you're going to be outblogged by Chad GPD and open AI. <laughs> you, you don't stand a chance, right? I mean, that's one. But then let's say you get past the intent and want thing. You want to change and stuff. Then it becomes a question of access, right? And the access is like, can you really truly democratize, you know, the, the ability of, you know, that technology in the hands of everybody? That kid who's got, who's got a, you know, really old school, first generation smartphone, which is now, you know, available in East Africa, can they use ChatGPT to do something that can increase their social mobility, being able to, you know, get work and, you know, perform tasks that they would otherwise not be able to get, get access to and stuff like that. And that access conundrum is like, it's an age old conundrum and everything, including healthcare and stuff. The one thing that is fundamental, this is why, you know, um, I love capitalism, right? So, there is money in increasing access. There is money in democratizing access to technology. I mean, any company that actually built something unique and kept it to themselves in the history of you know, humankind has never really been successful. The moment you start thinking about saying, how do I drive more adoption? How do I drive more access? How do I create this as a platform for others to innovate and build things on their own and create more value, which is all gonna drive money, wealth, generation, you know, power. So I think capitalism is going to come to the rescue in that thing too, including driving access, because we're going to make it economically very, very feasible as an option. Like, you know, I'll, I'll give you know, a simple example in our own life, my own life in, in, in Autonomize, right? We built some amazing, you know, um, algorithms for doing identification of biomarkers or like, you know, progression markers for certain diseases like, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, UC, or, you know, even diseases like, you know, some some types of small cell lung cancer. So, and this is a common thing, not just saying we're really good at it, but, you know, it's very common in the data science world today to open source it. You say, look, mm -hmm. here's a model. Here's how we optimized it. Go use it. Try more important people go do this, right? Traditionally, Early stage companies who do that are always frowned upon. They say, that's your IP and things like that. And like, we're like, we made a decision like, no, AI is not going to be a game of trying to build more ingredients to do AI. Because, you know, end of the day, OpenAI and Microsoft and all these big guys will create enough ingredients for everybody to do. But AI has a recipe problem, which is how do I take all those ingredients and solve the problem, cook a meal and deliver an experience to a user, to an industry, to a particular thing. And... You know, it's 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 also like you know, talking about change. Company companies who were AI companies when I started in AI building AI companies, 
were like, it was model. It was all about the model. And it was all about the data even, right? Every part of that stack gets commoditized, democratized, made access. Then you start thinking about, so it comes a full circle back into what's unique about humankind and what we can do uniquely. Like it's not the piece of technology. It's what you do with it. And then how do you create um, a value layer that is unique to you? And to, earlier, because there was no other way to do it, that painting was your value layer. Now, maybe looking at a painting and providing some you know, rich insight, I'm making this up. I'm not, I mean, I, I've tried to be an artist too many times in my life and failed miserably. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know I, I think, you know, art is also very subjective. But I think, you know, there is another layer of evolution that's going to, again, really bring out the best in humankind where we're going to actually find out saying, look, well, that's great. I thought the brush strokes was everything. But now I realize it's not the brush stroke. It's the combination. It's the thing. And it's an, all of a sudden, if I'm an artist and I can imagine and I can express that in human language, English, or any other language, GPT-3 or DALI or Stable Diffusion can turn that into the art. So the art of actually taking eight months to produce a painting now just became a few minutes. 2.5 seconds <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Depending on how many GPUs you have spun up, right? <laughs> it took longer to write the prompt than to get the result. Yes. Exactly. But prompt writing is not easy. I've tried DALI. I'm terrible at it. I mean, you should see my art. True. And then the, the, the art that actually won the art competition. I'm like, holy, what the hell? You know, it's like, <laughs> well, I am really bad at this, right? I know. <laughs> well, isn't it, isn't it MIT who is starting to like really pushing the term um, prompt engineering? Because it's like, yeah. I mean, and that's one of those things. But so, all right. So, Ganesh, so you're three for three um, so far because you're talking about exactly that, that the technology, it's not what you do with it or what the particular tool is. That goes back. That's that third piece, right? It's this idea of um, kind of kind of building on, you know, um, Marshall McLuhan's idea, right? The medium is the message. That this idea, it's not what it was created, it's what is possible through it. The change, the societal change, the individual change, the cultural change that is possible because it exists in ways that you're able to use it that can dramatically change everything, right? Um, this, this term, I, I really like to use it in terms of like empowering the adjacent possible, right? Um, when we create something, right, we might, there might be a, a use in mind to create that tool, but then what happens? What are all those new nuanced ways that allow people to explore? Um, so the, yeah, that, I feel like that's, that's fantastic. Um, the fourth piece. So here's, I'll, I'll, I'll put this one up front. Um, because this is the one that I think I gravitate towards most, especially when we talk about the challenges of specifically the, the here and now challenge in education, when people are start talking about what are we going to do about tools like ChatGPT? Should we ban them? Should we be like, this is going to ruin everything um, in terms of we can't do homework anymore. Or we can't take, allow kids, you know, how are we going to handle this? Is really, I think, and this is, I, I agree with this, but this, this idea from Postman that technical, technological change isn't additive or subtractive. It's ecological, right? That these consequences of technological change are vast and often unpredictable. Um, and that it's not about, like, we don't think today about we have education and we have education with the internet, right? We just talk about education. We just talk about schooling. That technology, while at some point, you know, rewind to the early 90s, we were talking about that. 
How is education going to change now that we have access to the information superhighway? Um, or the 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 furor that kicked up when Wikipedia first sort of came on site and people were citing and stealing Wikipedia answers um, for their research reports and things like that. So we've had these conversations before. We'll have them again. But it's this idea that from an educational perspective or an educational system to think about it in terms of an ecological change, that it is now in the system. So how do we then think about better ways to leverage it now that it is part of this, this ecology and thinking more about, well, how can we create, you know, new learning environments, learning, you know, new pedagogies, new ways, new activities and learning um, exercises that incorporate these technologies and not try to try to keep them out as if they're in some way like an invasive species or something like that, but to understand that it does, it is going to change the way things work um, and that we might not be able to have it clearly identified where we could just subtract it or add it um, to that, to that component. And Rashna, I'd be curious what you're seeing too, from your perspective of like just all the STEM, um, the STEM components in like K-12 environments. And, you know, how does this idea of like an ecological change mesh with AI and how you've been thinking about stuff? And um, I'm curious to hear your, your, your thoughts on that. I know that Ganesh and I kind of uh, sort of spoke to this in his own stories in AI, podcast as well. And um, when it comes very specifically, like, uh, and I'd love to hear Ganesha's perspectives too. When we're talking about these AI, or in fact, any emerging tech, I love how you put it, like in the 90s, we were like, there's internet and education. I think it's we're in that same same boat again, where it's like, there's AI. And what does that mean to schooling? And um, that's the same with any kind of emerging tech that happens. So, so some of the things that I'm seeing, um, especially being part of this uh, project, which I'll talk about towards the end too, it's uh, the Arizona STEM Acceleration Project. That's an Arizona-wide kind of program to help bolster our STEM learning across uh, across the state, especially to help uh, assist our teachers in in their STEM learning. One of the things that we're noting is like, or that I've noted is there's. And there's very little to, I think there's no one that in all of the professional development that's happening, that's actually dabbling in AI. There is, um, there's fear. There is um, the lack of just awareness and understanding. And um, but that's also because we're just, you know, everyone's treating it as like, as if there was a sudden change. The chat GPT of five days is this sudden technological change that took a hundred years to get to, but it's just not something that's been in our schooling system. So one of the challenges that I think I'm facing as a researcher, as a as a company that um, that's basically teaching these programs after school is okay. Why do I need this? Um, is this a fad? I've I've heard that question too. Uh, kind of like how how when 3D came about in our in our movie theaters, and I was like, no, it's here to, to stay. So the the whole idea of the ecological change again, um, and then just not really um, kind of like how we treated the internet. It was just is this just like is this just like a thing that I do on the side versus it's a tool that permeates across everything? How do I deal, you know, with cheating? And, um, you know, I have to remind people like, hey, did you know I'm writing my papers with Grammarly? And no one's been upset about that. It's, you know, it's editing my text for the last, you know, several years. <laughs> and so those, um, most of it's been around awareness. And um, I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote uh, Ganesh on this from one of his articles um, in, in the Medium article that you wrote, Ganesh, you said about the Terminator paradox and um, a conversation with Jer, you said everyone needs to have a basic understanding of AI 
and its impact, we can prepare ourselves and our children for an automated future so that we can prepare ourselves and our children for an automated future. And I think that's exactly where I sit right now as, as I look at this, you know, this Arizona project and what it means. It's, it's, it's very like awareness level versus, hey, here you are building some AI. It's just what does it mean? So, yeah, I'll just kind of turn it over to you guys. It's it's fascinating, Rachna. Now you're you're exactly right. I mean, like education. I think it came in Latin from educor, right? Educor, uh, which basically to mean train or to prepare for the future, right? We see enough evidence how the future is going to turn out. So, preparing kids, students, any educational institution that is actually looking at it should really embrace this more than anything to go in and say, how do I actually prepare everybody to a future? that you're gonna co-inhabit with intelligent systems and intelligent agents, if you will, right? Not just human beings. So that includes things like the reaction. And to, believe me, there are AI conferences where things like ChatGPT came out who put in their paper submission guidelines to say, do not use generative AI to develop your abstract. I'm like, come on. I mean, oh, you, wow. <laughs> this is, I mean, that's how it's again, going back to the core, right? Which is fear of change and you don't the uncertainty and stuff like that. I think education I and mean, more than anything, like, you know, we, we have to really rethink everything, the entire, the, 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 the ecological domain, how it's going to be. There's the social contracts that we have, you know, with educators, with education and stuff like that. I do know that ab the absolute wrong answer at this point for educators is to shut it down and say, we do not agree with that, right? There's actually been a lot of this in New York, you know, New York Times published that article. There have been a lot of colleges and universities. If you use generative AI, we find out that you used it to generate your essay. We know that that is not the answer. Now, if you really, I mean, think about that simple example of generating and submitting an essay. Okay. If somebody is really creative enough to create a really well-crafted essay that's been grammarly by ChatGPT and they submit it and they get in, well, if you're using essays as the primary way to actually get people in without really looking at the thing, there is your problem, not the fact that they used the tool to generate the essay, right? There you go. It's, it's very simple. You've got to start thinking about it beyond. Everybody will have to elevate ourselves to, okay, in this world, in this new social contract, how do I really get what I want to and things like that? So, I mean, and to Rachna, your point, I still believe the need of the hour. One of the reasons we started Stories in AI as a podcast and video series is about a year and a half now, is I fundamentally believe that, you know, it's the most foundational capability. We won't even, AI will be invisible in the next five years. We won't talk about AI. It is just a given. We don't talk about the internet anymore, right? We don't talk about an email. Send me a note, right? Send me an email. Or we don't talk about servers that power email. We don't talk about you know, a lot of things anymore because it's part of the fabric, part of the social contract. It's just not, you just know it's happening. Somebody's taking care of it, right? Similarly, AI will be that invisible force, if you will, that's going to power a lot of workflows, tasks, human beings, organizations, you know, all of those kind of stuff, right? When when you get to that future, I think what this really you, you we all have to think about, like if you're in education, you're thinking about educating, preparing people for that future getting foundational understanding of what it is and it's not, removing that fud, fear, uncertainty, doubt, and, and ensuring that everybody has factual understanding of what's in there, what can be done and what is not. It's foundational and everybody has to do it. Every educational institution has to double down on it. You know, if you're a 
establish education. This is the time. This is your call to action. Get, you know, in front of this, embrace that. Now, so we know the absolute wrong thing to do is actually shut, you know, shut down everything. Don't use AI. Just be like exactly how you were, right? It's going to shake up fiefdoms and kingdoms for sure. It's going to make people really jittery. Organizations, infrastructure, I mean, these this institutions get really freaked out. Like, you know, look at what crypto will do to governments, that kind of stuff, right? Or Federal Reserve Banks. I think the, so that's the wrong answer. Just shut it down. The right answer is somewhere between, look, how do I experiment with the new tools that I have to iteratively get to the right answer rather than saying, there's no right answer. The right answer is not use chat GPT for your essays. Probably not going to work, right? But maybe you can, you know, again, hypothetically, you can actually say, look, if you use chat GPT for certain parts of it, call that out so I know how you used it. Or give me the prompt you used to do it. That'll tell me how creative you are and how you're actually programming an intelligent system with words, if that's what I'm checking for, right? There are other ways to do it, but, you know, the and the right answer is somewhere between that and, you know, wait for things to mature and let's just embrace everything and just like, I'm just going to let you have it kind of thing. Mr. AI, you got it, you won. I don't <laughs> think that's the right answer either, right? So it's somewhere between like, how do I, and the very essence of AI is experimentation. The very essence of machine learning is iterative learning, if you will. And I think this is just a call to action for humanity to just say, there are intelligent systems among you. You got to redefine your social contract. You got to redefine your ecological foundations. How do you do it iteratively? So you get to a place that, you know, meets the goals and needs and um, generally has, has gets to a level of stability and you can start then worrying about the next future. Yeah, no, I... So five for five <laughs> on, on posting. So the last one, let me share. So the last one is around this idea of, of um, technologies becoming mythic. And so Ganesh, I think you had a really good point there because around this idea is, is what we need to do, right, is to understand how these things work, understand where their strengths and weaknesses are, understanding that like, yeah, we are not talking about, you know, a general artificial intelligence here. We're talking about, artificial intelligence and machine learning models and generative uh, way. We understand that these like chat GPT is a predictive algorithm, right? What word, what's the probability that the next word is placed down is the correct one and over and over yeah, and yeah. over, right? Because as Postman it's, states, right? Like that the danger with any technological change is when it becomes mythic. And so he quotes that, so this is from his, this is the last bit from, from the Postman piece that he quotes, that when a technology becomes mythic, it's dangerous because it is then acceptable, or sorry, as, then it is then accepted as it is, and is therefore not easily susceptible to modification or control. So if we just say, well, it's what it is, it has all the power, and therefore that's just the end, right, that that's where the danger lies in any technological change, AI or something else, but but really to understand like, no, it is part of a change. It's part of this idea where we can iterate in it, through it, about it. How are we using it is, is the point there, is to not fall into that trap of something becoming mythic where we just accept it as, as the end-all be-all. Yeah, absolutely. I think, in fact, there is a... So, so talking about chat GPT, and you're exactly right. If you really spend the time to iterate and learn and see what is good at and what's not. I mean, a lot of us did that. I'm sure you all did that. You tried what, how can you break it? How, and it's very human to do that. Yeah, and you find out it's wrong. 
Like it's, it's, it's just, you know, they, they, there's, a, <laughs> <laughs> there's actually, I'm going to put this, there's a thing called learn chat, learngpt.com is actually the, a really good resource, which basically is a collection of all the prompts that the That's best chat GPT examples from around the world, right? So it's a, it's a you know, free resource. You have everybody look at it. And some of them are like super funny. I mean, there's this, there's a WhatsApp joke going on where you're asking about saying, Mike has, uh, you're asking chat GPT, Mike has uh, three siblings, you know, Samantha, Sandra, and uh, John. Three of that, those are three of the names. What is the fourth sibling's name? I don't know. I'm a language model. I don't know how to answer that question. I don't have enough information. I'm like, I told you the answer. Oh, now I get it. Okay, this is it. So what we're realizing is like, at the end of the day, you just, you know, the facts, right? The facts are chat GPT or GPT in general is a really large, extremely smart, extremely contextual, trained in a lot of data, autocomplete. It's next sentence, next word prediction, or next character print. It's actually next word or half, next token prediction, which is half of a word or something like that. So that's what it is. Now it's been, it's a, that core piece of technology with enough training of everything that's in the internet. So we kind of understand styles and nuances and how people talk about it and things like that. All of the knowledge is contextualized in as embeddings. Now you're able to do really smart, really slick, really awesome autocompletes, right? The moment you have that switch and you understand that's what it's doing, like, oh, it's great. Now I use it as a tool. Like, I, I you know, I, I spoke my developers in my company where like, I'm like, hey, can we build an API for this and expose this in endpoint? And, you know, it'll be this, you know, I'll try to act like I know everything I'm talking about, right? With them. And then they'll be like, no, no, it's really hard to do. And I'll just do a prompt in chat GPT and say, give me Python code for this, define this API with this oh input, this output, this characteristics instead, copy paste on the chat and say, how about something like this? And they'd be like, what? I mean, this was early days before, you know, right after the, the chat GPT. So everybody hadn't caught up to it. Now they call my bluff immediately, right? But the moment you start seeing, you now you start seeing this opportunity. And like one of the things I did as CEO was like, I told everybody in the team, including developers, yes, I know you're going to stack overflow asking questions. Well, you have a better resource. I want you to write more code, but not really write that code. Use Copilot. Everybody has a license for uh, you know Copilot, the 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 GPT based codex model that is used to autocomplete code, um, and it's just like it, it's it's the same thing, right? You can actually ask CEOs of a company of an organization. You can either say like, "Man, let's double down. Let make sure you don't actually plagiarize what you from the internet and stuff," or saying, "This is going to get me to uh, doing six releases a week instead of three. I can write 15,000 uh, $15, more lines of code a day than I did earlier. I'm getting my customers to a happier place faster, sooner, with lower cost. Boom. This is the way to actually go embrace it. I mean, same thing happens to education. We just have to just look at it and say it's a tool. And what's the best use for this tool to get to the outcome that I'm trying to do, right? And, you know, after the dust settles, everybody will figure this out, right? Right now, it's like, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're just conditioned to do clickbait, right? I mean, so we just, you have all these, everybody are planning about how chat GPT is going to revolutionize everything and stuff. So it's going to be there and it's going to revolutionize a lot of things. The important thing to understand, it's not human. It's a really smart model that can be programmed to perform tasks with just English language without learning how to code. That's the, the, the magic that is happening here. So yeah, the whole, you know, being mythical, 
I think there's going to be always some aspect of it in any technological revolution and evolution that happens, right? So we were going to, going to, yeah, it's 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 just going to be there, just part of the ecological evolution, if you will, with to living with technology. <laughs> I like that you said that you know when you it, it helps in drawing the comparisons and bringing it down from this like somewhere in the air, mythical whatever level to an understanding in layperson, like it's a super fancy autocomplete or um, comparing it to other tools in the past, especially, I think that the, those are some of the ways I go about it. If I'm using that language with uh, students, with teachers, so that it feels relatable. Cause otherwise it just, it sounds like something that's replacing us. Every time something comes out, it sounds mm -hmm. like something that's replacing um, our learning or a way of being. But when you start to just change the language around it, um, through podcasts like yours or like this or through that stuff we the terminator then it just feel, oh okay super fancy autocomplete and you know then it just feels more palatable then <laughs> you know you know if you, people who think about terminator i encourage them to think about iron man what we're really building as an industry <laughs> is a jarvis suit for everybody i love right? that so you have the opportunity to be the iron man with the jarvis you know on your on your at your disposal to do things that you don't want to do what's uniquely yours, right? I mean, that's that's the right ideal. I mean, obviously there's gonna be some, you know, Terminator equivalent uh, <laughs> bad actors and unintended consequences and stuff. But I mean, we're way too far away to, you know, the, the biggest thing is somebody, there was actually a, a gentleman, Peter Was, is a very unique episode of Stories in AI uh, who came on my show about a year ago or so. And he talks about it saying, nobody has ever explained to me why would a machine or an algorithm want to do something bad, right? The intent, right? It's just like very, it's, it could be a human being using it, but then, you know, it's as good as actually picking up a, um, an AR-15 rifle from Walmart without a background check, of course, different topic, and then going in and shooting people around versus, uh, you know, using a model to actually, you know, predict when people are going to need a power surge and turning off power at a hospital system. It's equally bad. And it's always the human behind it. It's the good and the bad of humanity, right? I mean, it's the intent and the 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 the, the motivation that is really to blame, not the technology. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because that that room, like the first thing that popped into my mind when you were talking about that was the same sort of some of again from an existential like those warnings, right? That go back to you know uh, AI philosophers like Nick Bostrom, right, with the paperclip maximizer, right, like. I love this. And if people aren't familiar, well, again, we'll put a link to it. It's a great thought experiment. I mean, and for those who aren't familiar, I mean, essentially I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a hack job here to, to, to retell it. But essentially the danger here is that when an artificial intelligence system was programmed, it was programmed for optimization of production of paper clips, right? So the little metal, remember those kids, those actually, I shouldn't say that. Remember that all, all, all of us, because the kids That's are, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> We used to have to put paper clips on paper to hold them together when turning them or handing them in. And it's, or better yet, it's the attach, it's the icon for the attach button on your, you know, whatever email. But this idea that by the human not understanding the repercussions of how to use that tool, we say optimize at all expenses. You want to optimize, your mission is to optimize paperclip, um, you know, production. And so this AI says, okay, fine. And over as it continues to, you know, go from generalized intelligence to super intelligence, right? That it's not acting evil, but by its nature of optimization, it's now consuming everything under its control to eventually reduce our entire planet to nothing but 
paper clips, you know, and, and somebody had, somebody had quoted too, right. Kind of off that, that topic that the AI does not like you. It does not hate you, but you are made of atoms that it can use for something else. Right. And so, but it's this idea, right. That this fun idea that, that it's our, it is the human element and how we think about and how we use those tools and how, what parameters are we placing, which of course is always that baked in piece that there is no such thing as a neutral technology that no matter what, it will always reflect the biases, the values of those who create it and they're what they're putting into it. And so as we're thinking about these as those changes, right, that coming all the way back around, whether it be AI particularly or any other technological change, especially as we're moving forward into this, this, you know, incredibly fast paced, you know, era of, of innovation and disruption is ensuring that we're doing you know, as we're creating these things and as we have the ability to create them ourselves or vote for policy to regulate the creation and and and, and, and so on and so on, is that we do so that with a humanistic lens, right? How do we ensure that these technologies are, are developed to increase or improve human agency and not take it away for, you know, prioritizing for, like I said, paperclip ma- manufacturing and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting space. Uh, to think about those because it's and it's and then again with things like the paperclip maximizer fun thought experiments to go down to as well you know nick borstrom's um super intelligence actually a fascinating book i mean it was like i read it a long time ago and you know before ai was this hard at that time and it's amazing to think of someone actually you know just the, the thought experiment on that like the paperclip maximizer but evolution of that book is actually talking about how you know, what if, you know, again, the intent and agency, those kind of things comes in, but what if you can just optimize, you've given an optimization problem to an AI system and it builds better systems to optimize for that problem. And then that builds better systems that is more, you know, see evolution of super intelligence is the, the thesis of his thing. But your point on like, I think none of this absolves our responsibility uh, to, I wouldn't call it like preserve human agency or anything, but more like, you know, what's the responsibility for our fellow citizens and society and neighbors and, you know, people in other parts of the world who are not as fortunate and stuff like that, right? So there is definitely a, a huge element of that. And I think we cannot absolve the need, the understanding of the need to have the right kill switches, the governance mechanisms, the and to ensure that there's two things, two broad problems, right? One is bad actors intending to do bad consequences to, to other people. you got to stop that. So you have rules and laws and stuff. Have we rethought in this new social contracts with uh, co-living with technology, which we are really good at. But the part that we're not really good at is understanding the unintended consequences and stopping that, right? And so everybody asks me, like, why do you need a kill switch? I'm like, yeah, you need a kill switch because if you don't understand what the hell is going on, at least you can stop before it goes worse, right? So things like that. Now, I, I think well, we do that in every other thing. You know, your car has got multiple mechanisms to not be a weapon of mass destruction, right? So, um, and and of course, the, the, the intention, stuff like that. So there's too many different things in there, like the auto braking system. Same kind of concepts apply to intelligent algorithms or algorithmic systems like AI, you know AI systems if you will so no you're exactly right I think you know the, the the big highlight of this whole thing is the good consequence the outcome of the current hype and thing is going to be 
everybody's going to wake up and say, we got to do something about it, right? And that will also lead to really smart people in their domains, like governance, like public, you know, uh, public health, uh, like, um, you know, compliance or, you know, things like that, which they're really good at. They don't understand how to, how do you keep bad, bad actors out of society? How do you, you know, encourage good behavior? People who understand that a lot now have more tools to actually do that, right? And so, and that also will put this whole notion of how do you build trustworthy AI? How do you build AI that is, you know, um, ethically sound, you know, making decisions that are ethically sound? How do you not create unfair advantages for certain parts of the society? I mean, which half of that is actually non-stoppable. It's going to happen. People with tech, the companies like Mark Cuban said, who are great at AI will have an unfair advantage over everybody else, right? So, but how do you create that balance, if you will, to make sure that you really look at this amazing piece of technology that can be overall largely used for the benefit humankind of the society, right? So um, yeah, it's it's super exciting times. Ganesh, this is such a great connect. And you've, I mean, I, over this entire podcast, we've covered so many different thought processes. I think that will be really, um, I'm excited to share this with the teachers that, you know, even even though a lot of the conversations take a moment to digest when when this isn't what you do day to day, but I'm really excited to share this just as a point of like awareness and this idea of here's what's happening. You brought up some good points of how people who are really great in their individual fields are, are going to sort of take this and move forward as needed as a tool, whether it's governance, whether it's public health, and in our case, um, education. So I'm going to ask you sort of a final question, putting on our now education, but more parent hat of children who are in a schooling system. So all three of us, Sean, Ganesh, myself, all three of us, we have kids that are in preschool and elementary years, very young. They're they're entering this time frame where the baselines for them, like we make, we, we say stuff like, when I was your age, I had a telephone, you know, and they're like, for them is, you know, or I used to talk on, you know, without a video. So, so they're in this stage where this is becoming baseline technology for them. So I'm curious, thinking about your own children as they're going to school there in, you know, in Texas and mine in Arizona or two in Arizona, what are some of the ways maybe like the, in everything you've learned, like some concrete ways, how do you see them? Your two littles, how do you see them using AI in their school? Or how do you, how do you wish for their schooling system maybe to incorporate it? Because I know it's, it's definitely not the case in my schools yet. But I know you talk about it at home. So I'm curious, what do you think? What would you like to see? Well, no, it's a great question, Rajna. I think, you know, I don't I don't have a straight out answer, but, you know, I would like um, the schools to educate them on, you know, on history, on how we got to where we are today, right? And what has changed over time. There's a little, you know, the nuance there is actually not about saying, hey, here's cool little AI and stuff. Like, look, we they have to understand the, the context around this, right? What changed, right? How does that actually quantum shift happen? I don't know what the right age to teach those things are, but you know, doubling down on understanding the evolution of technology, of humanity, human behavior, it's gonna be super huge. That said, that aside, I think I, I wish schools and um, educational systems and organizations in general just focus on, I mean, the way people consume content and educational content has changed so much which is why you have more people addicted to um, 
TikTok videos or Facebook shorts than your science textbook, right? I mean, like, I haven't met a single kid that's like super addicted to a science textbook, right? So <laughs> I think there is a fundamental foundational thing, the way we educate, the way we actually prepare people for the future has changed and has to change, right? One is like, how do you encourage more micro task-based learning, right? So like my modularized things, instead of saying, I'm going to take you, go through multiplication. And I, you know, honestly, I compare this to early education when I did my early education in India versus what we do here in this country. We're far better in that, that abstract thinking. We actually encourage task-based things and so forth. But specifically on AI, I think you got to start introducing some part of these concepts. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a chat GPT login, but it is like saying, hey, I, you know, three-digit multiplications. I, I don't know, I, I'm trying to make something up, right? But instead of actually, how do you use a tool to automate some part of what they do, which is nef- not core to what they're trying to do as a whole? I don't know that that makes well sense. Said. Like, for example. No, no, that does. Right? That does make sense. That makes sense about, like, I think it's not, your, like, you said it really well. It's not really the, it's not like AI as its term. It's even just the concept of automation itself is such a exactly. a piece on its own. It's powerful. Um, yeah, that is very powerful. And, or things like just problem solving or <laughs> critical yeah. thinking. So, no, yeah. I, really I, I'll, give you a, I'll give you one specific example. So my nine-year-old, Yvonne, right? And we talked about it the other day, right? We were catching up, Rachna, which is like, he wanted to, he's big into Pokemon. So he's like, okay, I want to do Pokemon. So I'm like, I just encouraged him. He's like, okay, what do you want to do with this? And, like, and he's very, you know, fairly entrepreneurial uh, in, in the way he thinks about things and stuff a little too much at times because he's always negotiating with me. Like if I, you know, how much will I earn or get if I do oh this God, kind of that. thing, right? So, uh, but he actually, um, he wanted to like, dad, I want to set up a Pokemon bit because he figured it out that, you know, everybody who likes Pokemon in his class. So he started, you know, printing out his own. So he got Pokemon cards and then he'll mix it up with to have some really not so unique cards and some really rare cards in between and gamified with his friends to say, hey, you can buy a pack, which has got seven cards. It's going to cost you $5, but you may stand the chance to win a really, you know, expensive card in there, like, or whatever the, the, the moniker is. And he was like, I want to do that. And I want to set up an online store. I'm like, okay, listen, I mean, why do you want to set up an online store? So he said, so I gave him little tools, right? I said, just don't have to learn to code in Python and stuff like that. Set up a Google Forms. And he's like, yeah, I know how to use Google Forms. So he set up a Google Forms. And then he actually came and said, okay, I'm going to go, you know, I want to actually send this to everybody. I want to email this. Like, like, what are other ways you can do it? Well, I can ask you, you have 15,000 followers on, on your social media ah, page. I'm like, okay, I'll do it, right? <laughs> so you start thinking about, like, an automation doesn't have to be, like, just a tool. Like, but it could be, like, how do you, the things that we have to teach a lot more in our children, my view is like, how to ask for help? How do you actually collaborate and communicate? Because communication becomes everything. How do you break down a problem into tasks and subtasks? And then you can actually just, you know, if we can really get to, we can actually tell them what are the tasks that are automatable, that are best done. It's, it's you know, somebody asked me a 16 digit multiplication question right now. None of us will ever, you know, even imagine trying to do it in pen and paper. Yet we expect our kids to do it in school, right? In a lot of places. Really great point. Breaking that down is going to, you know, make all the difference. I think that's the way you introduce them to this, right? The concepts of collaboration and, you know, um, education. I mean, this whole decentralized 
way of actually, you know, uh, collaborating with other people. I mean, that's what we're doing. We're on Zoom, right? I mean, so think about it. Like, it's just like this collaboration. These are the skills that's going to be huge for the kids as they grow up. So I don't, I don't have a straight answer. <laughs> no, no, no. I love it. And I think I'm going to uh, co-teach with Yvonne next time and have him share his, um, you know, his little adventure with Pokemon cards. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. So. Awesome. I love that. Awesome. Thanks he'll for probably ask today. you for speaking fee from what I, uh, he'll probably ask <laughs> he you for should. speaking fee. Learn, learn early. That's right. I love it. Um, well, this has just been absolutely fantastic. And yes, I think we, we could sit here and talk to you for the rest of the day. Um, but I do want to let you get back to, you know, running your business, doing all these kind of amazing things. But before we go, um, before, so I just want to kind of a, a tradition, if you will, with our, with our show as we, let our guests have an opportunity to share or plug something. I mean, we've been mentioning your podcast, but, um, and we'll put everything that you are willing to share. We'll put everything in our show notes so people can find us. Um, but yeah, before we sort of wrap up and sign off, Ganesh, is there anything you'd like to share or plug or projects you want to call our, our listeners attention to? Yeah, no, I would say three things. Let me, you know, uh, one is, Definitely, you know, check out stories in AI, like the podcast. And and I think more from a perspective of the, the the whole purpose there is actually getting more and more people inspired to take part in this AI revolution, right? And so definitely check it out. Look at the guests. Send me feedback. Send me, you know, who else do you want to actually listen to? Whose perspectives would you like to hear about? So that's one. Second is if you're in... AI already, you're actually doing machine learning or you're in the surrounding area and you're passionate about health and healthcare, right? You want to improve the way human being, the way drugs are developed, the way, uh, you know, we, we deliver access to care, making healthcare equitable for everybody. And and you're you're looking for some fun project to be a part of, well, we are hiring at Autonomize. So uh, check out autonomize.ai, you know, reach out to me. And lastly, I would say, right, more than anything, more a call to action for like, I think the timing is now, right? If you haven't gotten into AI, don't worry about it being too late. It is not late. We're still going to be, I mean, we're, we're getting to a point that everything that we know about what it means to be successful in AI is changing, right? And what I mean by that is the companies that are great in AI, well, I mean, we'll, used, to be, uh, ha- used to have 1,500 data scientists building models from scratch. Well, today you don't need, it's it's much more democratized. You just need a couple of really good prompt writers, right? To get started, right? So you're, you're not late. So I think, you know, what you need to actually do is contextualize it and really find where you are uniquely qualified, maybe a domain, maybe an area, maybe a skill set, a human part of this thing. And then how do you surround AI as a tooling, as your own Jarvis suit to become Iron Man in your domain, right? That is the the big call to action I have for everybody. Just get involved. I think this is the time to do it. Yeah, those are fantastic. Um, and and Roshna, how about yourself? Anything anything you want to plug? Yeah, I would like to actually give a really big shout out to where I think our teachers are taking those steps as part of the ASAP Arizona STEM Acceleration Project. So I want to kind of give a shout out to the folks that are making this happen. It was it's a big grant, an Arizona Department of Education grant, looking at really taking it to the next level um, for our educators across Arizona and K-12 in how they teach STEM, the kind of access. They're actually building this amazing repository of lessons and um, 
anything ranging from like your classical kind of sciences all the way to all the latest tech. And um, I just want to be able to say that, you know, any of our teachers that are out there here in Arizona, please take a look at it. It's stemsteachers.asu.edu. Apply for it. You're getting, um, I think it's like about, about $7,000. They get towards themselves and towards supplies. So we're seeing people get pick up robotics kits and really that taking those steps, like Ganesh said, like understanding automation first, bits and pieces of coding that are all step stones, in, in my perspective, are step stones in that the learning of how do you use these tools and they build eventually into AI, even if we don't necessarily have AI as a module yet, or like you're kind of learning that. These are all just the building blocks to being able to work with these, with whatever new tools thrown our way and becomes part of our fabric, as Ganesh said earlier. So, um, yeah, that that is it. I um, really, really enjoyed Ganesh. Thank you so, so much for thank joining you. us. Yes, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and and sharing all of your amazing insights and, and expertise and thoughts with us. This has been an absolute, an absolute joy. No, it was a blast. Rajna, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And Sean, great to meet you too. And uh, that was fun. This was a blast. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Rajna, thank you for being our guest host. So I, I do hope you will come back. I, I would love to. <laughs> yeah. And so as we wrap up here too, I think I'm going to start a new tradition, which is if we have a guest host, you get to sign us off. So whenever oh, you take us, take us away. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Learning Futures podcast. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and details. If your podcast player allows for reviews, please leave us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. The Learning Futures Podcast is a collaborative production by Enterprise Technology and the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. The show's executive producer is Dr. Sean Leahy, produced by Jacob Snyder, with production support provided by Jennifer Ayala and technical production provided by Jacob Snyder. We hope you've enjoyed this episode.